say it's in a crucial stage. It's not because of foreign wars we wage. It's more to do with the colors blue and red. Too many laws and too much government. Can you tell me where the Constitution went? Bill of Rights is just hanging by a thread. So many people try to cross the border. Politicians build a new world order. Too many minds are convinced they should be led. I've got to be Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's broadcast. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing with all of the usual caveats, of course. With you, as always, I'm your ever-so-humble host, Tim Tapp, coming to you live from historic Roan County, Tennessee. That music you heard that brings us into the show, that's Mr. Matt Fitzgibbons. Uh, as time allows, if you have not already, and even if you have already, feel free to go ahead and do it again. Go ahead and check out PatriotMusic.com. Won't be sorry, I promise. Now, what do we have going on here today? Hmm, let's see. What's in the news? What's in the news? Hmm. Well, let's see. We've got Graham Cassidy supposedly uh, barreling headlong into its deadline vote of this upcoming week. Uh, President Donald Trump is also supposed to be unveiling his tax reform plan this upcoming week. And for some strange reason, the Donald seems to be in a Twitter war with the likes of the NFL and uh, with LeBron James and Stephon Curry and uh, others in the NBA, I suppose. Stephon Curry has now been disinvited to the White House. <sighs> well, you know, on the offset, it seems like, well, this is just more typical Donald Trump. You know, he gets involved with something and then he won't let it go. Uh, and this is, of course, stemming uh, – the, the issue with the NFL, of course, is stemming from a rally that he was at in uh, Alabama on Friday night where he made the statement to a group of folks 
that obviously are pretty patriotic and they don't see uh, disrespecting the American flag as a positive. So we made a statement that wouldn't you just like to see an NFL owner firing somebody for kneeling during the national anthem? Now, at that point, he's not saying these folks should be fired. He's gauging the crowd. Okay, now, so let's let's be fair and let's be honest about the situation. Would he like to see these people fired? You know, I don't even know. I don't know how passionate he actually feels about this. I know he's playing to the base right now. He wants to seem like he's passionate about it, but who knows? I mean, it could just be theater because that is the one thing that Donald Trump is very, very good at, more so than maybe anything else. It's part of his branding strategy, play the media. He knew what the media's reaction to this would be. At this point, it's not a mystery. It's not a surprise. There are no shocks. You give the media just the slightest indication that they've got a reason to attack, and guess what? They will lie. So no surprise. Uh, supposedly, he has folks around him that tried to dissuade him from saying stuff like this, and again, there's good reason for that. <coughs> but you know what? This is going to be primary topic for the second hour. I have opened up on my personal Facebook page uh, a posting asking for folks to make comments on it. So please feel free to boogie on over there if you're listening live and do so. Or you can hop on into the chat room and you can make your comments here. And I will try sharing the best comments as time allows. Uh, I already have a couple of good ones. Uh, while I'm on the topic of the chat room, quick shout out to Gary who has joined us. Uh, how are things up in Canada, Gary? Hope they're uh, doing better. Although, you know, as long as the shining pony, as Kel refers to him, uh, remains your prime minister, I don't know how good things can get without an uprising of the people. And by uprising of the people, I just mean taking control back. I don't necessarily mean violence and armed uprising, which I'm sure folks on the left are going to say that's exactly what I meant. It was a dog whistle. Listen to that mean old Tim Tap trying to tell Canada to revolt. Uh, no, that wasn't the message. <laughs> of course, uh, for the benefit of the listening public, uh, Gary responded, things are not good for Canada. Trudeau happened. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's about what uh, one can expect, but we should be able to take some time away from such things. All right, at any rate, I'm uh, going to talk a lot about uh, Trump and uh, health care and uh, this tax uh, reform plan, although I'm not going to get in-depth details with with those items, but so much as what's the strategy or is there a strategy? Because my question is, which you can tell by the title of today's broadcast, is this just bad timing for Trump to start this little Twitter war? Is this a scheme, a plan of Donald Trump to try to utilize the culture war as a distraction so he can be more effective behind the scenes? Because uh, if you're watching any kind of mainstream media today, there are very few things that people want to talk about other than how the NFL has chosen to protest uh, Donald Trump supposedly 
And I've read some of the tweets, and I don't see the tweets as being uh, Donald Trump calling for boycotts of the NFL. I believe he is merely saying that uh, a lot of fans have been uh, already doing their own little boycotts, and for good reason. But like I said, we'll get into a lot of that in the second hour. So here in the first hour, we're going to try to get some of these other topics. And some of them are still interrelated because, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to change the name of the show, and that is Tap Into the Culture Wars instead of Tap Into the Truth. Because Culture War stories for the last several weeks are about all we've really had to talk about that fits the groove of what I want to what I want to discuss, which is why I'm making a point of talking about the health care issue and the potential of the uh, tax reform that Trump is hoping to create. I want to discuss that to a degree because it's been a while since we've talked about just pure politics. Politics has been moved off to the side. The culture wars are a big part of the political landscape, and it explains a lot of what's going on. So it's important that we talk about those stories and that we're aware of what's going on. But I'm also going to have an outrage of the week uh, this week. Have not had a story that fit that bill in a while, at least not designated as such. Uh, designated as such. Didn't sound like that's what I said. <laughs> but anyway, uh, well, Gary, I think you're right. I think Trump should carry on and, and continue to do the things that he's working towards. Uh, there are some other political stories also. Uh, the uh, travel restriction executive order technically expires today. Uh, Trump is working on a new one that is supposed to be even uh, more language-friendly to have less opposition through legal means. So we'll see how that transpires. But uh, you know there are other things going on, and it's important that we talk about those things too. So I'm going to try to get to as many of those before the second hour, and it. May I may be hard pressed because I get on some of these stories and I just get going. I definitely do not want to uh, miss out on some of this, but uh, let's start with uh, what to me was the outrage of the week, and this is a pretty big one in my mind, and I think most of you would agree. It may also fall into the category of a headline you may have missed because I didn't see a whole lot of coverage on this story either. Uh, some brief mentions, but nobody got into details. Uh, at this point, there have been what in the minds of a lot of people would constitute shocking uh, courtroom allegations that have emerged during Anthony Weiner's underage sex scandal hearing. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I mean, uh, where, where do you jump in on this story? I mean, just when you thought we'd heard heard it all about the despicable and depraved Anthony Weiner – well, here out comes another revelation in court, and it's you know it really kind of sticks with me this one, which is why it's important to talk about it. In the court papers that were filed this week before the uh, September 25th sentencing of the accused child sex predator, prosecutors said that former Democratic congressman repeatedly convinced an underage girl. Uh, a young lady that was just 15 years of age, to strip naked and fondle herself while he watched over Skype. Okay, what's more, the girl made it clear that she wasn't just a minor, that she was in fact only 15 years old, at least according to reports in the New York Post. That, of course, did not stop Anthony Weiner, and that, of course, was stated specifically in the prosecution's papers, quote, during the latter two Skype sessions, 
on February 18th and 23rd of 2016. And in a Snapchat communication on March 9th, the defendant used graphic and obscene language to ask the minor victim to display her naked body and touch herself, which she did. Now, Anthony Weiner happens to be 53 years old at this point. So Weiner also sent the girl an obscene message using an app called Confide in which he described, quote, what he would do to her if she were 18. Now, all this is in the court papers, uh, and I'm continuing uh, from the court paperwork that were filed. Uh, quote, part and parcel of these disturbing and criminal exchanges, the defendant also sent the minor adult pornography. Uh, prosecutors noted that Wiener uh, had acknowledged an interest in legal adult teen-themed pornography, which they said makes his claim that the girl's age wasn't a factor in attracting in his attra attraction ring uh, made it ring a little hollow, if you know what I mean. Uh, the prosecutors noted that after previous allegations. Wiener had responded in a familiar pattern in which he initially denied his conduct. He suffered personal and professional consequences. He publicly apologized and claimed reform. Now, despite those claims, however, they said he has on multiple occasions continued to engage in the very conduct he swore off. Now, back in May, Wiener pleaded guilty to transferring obscene material to a minor. He faces up to 10 years in prison when sentenced this upcoming Monday, but several court watchers say he could get as little as two years. John Deere Baylor. Now, as little as two years? This is designed with Is that really what we're talking about for, for what this man has done here? I mean, it's bad enough. But he has managed to get his soon-to-be ex-wife, Uma Abedin, and even uh, Hillary Clinton herself, along with uh, attorneys associated with the Clintons, to stand up in court on behalf of this man and plead for leniency and claim that he's suffering from a mental disorder. You know, I mean, this is, I guess, part and parcel of the deal. Uh, uh, Uma needed a, a way to stay in the country. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know, but there was some kind of setup, and the Clintons were obviously behind it, that helped Uma to end up married to this Jewish pervert from New York who has since moved uh, out of New York or had tried to move out of New York. He's ended up having to be brought back because of the issues, his legal troubles here. But this is a 15-year-old girl. That uh, that he lured into this activity, and it's it is part and parcel with the culture war too. I mean, it, because we have fifteen year olds that have been bombarded with all these media images that hypersexualize everything. And Gary, you're absolutely right. Uh, Wiener is an awful excuse for a man, and I don't even know that he can claim that status. But children of today are bombarded with all these pop culture images, and they hypersexualize everything, and the left is trying everything that they possibly can think of to try and normalize the most deviant of behaviors. 
So a lot of uh, children uh, between the ages of 12 and 15 already feel like if they're not in some kind of sexual relationship by their age, then something is wrong with them. When it's exactly the opposite is true. There is absolutely nothing wrong with waiting until you're in your freaking 20s to get involved in a sexual relationship. Whatever it takes. In fact, you know what? If you want to go back to biblical rule, which I know a lot of you don't, and some of you will even ostracize me for mentioning it. But guess what? When I show my microphone, I get to say it. So I'm going to say it. You want to go by biblical principle, you shouldn't be involved in sexual relationships until you have gotten married with someone, until you've made a uh, commitment that you plan on being committed to and that you intend on it being lifelong. And that doesn't preclude the possibility of divorce under certain circumstances. It just means don't get married just to do it and then yeah, treat marriage as cheaply as you treat life if you support abortion. It should mean something to you. But unfortunately, that's not the culture we live in now, and these children are led to believe that there's literally something wrong with them if they're not involved in some fashion. So Anthony Weider being famous and involving himself somehow connecting with this minor – He's able to manipulate her, and she is a victim here, but uh, I mean she's a two-time victim. She's a victim of our society, which kind of makes her an easier target, and she's a victim of this perversion that Anthony Weiner can't seem to to escape himself from. So there doesn't seem to be much question that Anthony Weiner will be going to prison, but what is absolutely – Beyond the pale is the extent to which he has taken this. It would be different if he was an 18-year-old pursuing a 17-year-old or even a 16-year-old. I mean I could see that close in age. By the law, it's still a violation. But there is that possibility that these two children would have known each other from high school and that they're both old enough at this point that they should be able to start making some decisions and start making some choices for themselves about it, and as long as they know that they're going to be held accountable for their mistakes. Accountability seems to be the one thing that's missing from our culture here in the United States altogether. I mean, I can't speak for the West of West for the rest of Western civilization. But there does seem to be a lack of an accountability, at least as far as par- politicians are concerned, because nobody seems to be get, seems to be held accountable for their actions, their policies, and how they present themselves. But Anthony Weiner, this is the outrage of the week. Number one, because of the actions in question. First of all, hello, I'm a 53 year old man who has been in the public eye and has disgraced myself multiple times now, and I'm going to stand in court, and I'm going to plead for mercy, even though I've already pled for mercy on nearly the same charge a couple of times already, and I'm going to continue to cry that, you know, it's not really my fault, and he's going to continue to get support from people like Uma Abedin, who's supposed to be cutting ties. Why would she be there supporting him and pleading the court for mercy if she knows what he did? I mean, I, 
I'm okay with uh, there being some point where if you're having an amicable split or if you're divorcing one another because you've come to a point where you realize you just don't work as a couple, that you've legitimately tried it, and for there still to be some positive feelings and being willing to stand up for somebody who doesn't really deserve uh, the treatment that they're getting. I get that, but there's no question that Anthony Weiner did this. No question at all that he is actually guilty of the crimes he's been committed of. He's admitted to it, but his defense is that it's not really his fault. So why, as the soon-to-be ex-wife, would you stand up and try to be supportive of this man, knowing what you know, and knowing that no matter how much we as the general public are made aware of his issues and his dalliances and his extracurriculars, that we're still never going to know everything that this guy has done. We have solid reason to believe that we haven't heard all of it, and we have solid reason to believe that much of it could be just as bad or even worse than what we do know. <clears throat> now, can we condemn a man for something we don't know? No. But can we condemn him for stuff we do know? Yes. This is a man who should be kept far, far away from children and I would say from the public in general, for as much and as for as long as possible. Now, does that mean he needs to do hard time in a terrible prison where he might get shanked? Yeah, I don't know necessarily that. If he really does have some kind of psychological disorder, I mean, opinions vary on that. I'm not going to take a side. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he needs psychiatric care. I don't know that psychiatric care is going to help him, so if you'll give me a guarantee that he has to stay locked up and under a doctor's care until he can either be legitimately cured or until he passes on, then okay, I might be all right with that. And obviously if he goes to prison, well, I think he'd get what he deserves. But the, the, the other side, yet a third outrage that goes along with the story is the fact that he may only serve two to three years, the sentence here should be for 10. And I'll tell you why the sentence should be for 10, and that is quite simply because he has a history. This isn't a case of uh, other people have made accusations. And obviously, yes, you're not supposed to try him for previous crimes. It's not really supposed to enter into it. But when the man is on probation and already has to list himself on the sexual predator's list, then I say that this is probably also a violation of his earlier probations to boot. How could it not be? And, and if this is the case, then yes, he should pay the full extent because he's not. He's been given the benefit of the doubt. He's been given the easiest path allowable. He's been allowed to maintain his freedom. And yet at this point, it's clear that not only is he this super mega creepy stalker guy and pedophile – but he is still building up his courage to take it further and further because previously it was still pictures. Now he's moved up to video. We all know what happens after that. What would have probably happened in this case if it had been allowed to continue and he hadn't been caught, and that is you should meet me somewhere. Would she have? Well, if she was already vulnerable enough to be manipulated into fondling herself in front of uh, 
the camera for this these Skype sessions, then uh, who knows? I mean, you'd like to think that maybe that would be the red line that she wouldn't cross. But there's no question, there is no doubt whatsoever that there is no red line that he would not have crossed. He was prepared to go full on. He was prepared to do whatever because this is how he gets excited, as twisted as that is. So this is the outrage of the week. Number one, that we had to find out the extent that this has went through court filings and the fact that he still maintains support from Uma Almadine and Hillary Clinton as evidenced by the legal team that is defending him and the fact that they were willing to beg leniency and that he might actually get it. How at this point do you get leniency? If if I had somebody illegally email me uh, illicit images and I had opened them not knowing what they were, even if I deleted them immediately and whoever was out to get me sent me sent the FBI this information, I'm sure I wouldn't get any leniency. I'm sure that I would be facing uh, legal consequences which uh, I could make a strong argument was completely unfair. I didn't, uh, I didn't solicit these photos. I opened them not knowing what they were, and I didn't keep them. I'd say that a lot of folks have been in a similar situation, but when you are literally, <laughs> when you are literally on Skype, uh, telling somebody to undress and to to touch themselves while you watched and then sending them graphic messages about what you would do to them if they were 18. And that's just that last little bit of the legal mind working. It's like you've already broken the law. You've already violated uh, the extent of of the uh, You've already crossed a moral boundary that can't be uncrossed at this point. So you can say that age matters to you if you're going to take that next step. But based on everything we've seen to this point, it's pretty clear. If you had a fair opportunity there, Anthony, I'm pretty sure you would do far worse. All right. Uh, Looks like I'm still getting some more uh, some more responses on Facebook to the question. Uh, more people are uh, tacking on even now, and some folks are even starting to comment with each other. So uh, that part's good. That part is good. <sighs> I should probably move on from the Anthony Weiner thing at this point. Um, uh, just a quick story. Won't uh, spend too much time on it. Uh, uh, question mark, uh, what is the deal with this gender unicorn that's popping up on college campuses? Uh, yeah, there's really this thing going on uh, on college campuses. There's this gender unicorn. Um, not sure why you need a unicorn per se, but, uh, you know, it's purple and it's very cartoonish and it's, part of an educational outreach thing. So the question is, what's the deal? Well, the answers may be even scarier than the question itself. So uh, a cutesy little 
uh, gender unicorn in the vein of Barney the Purple Dinosaur has been kind of popping up on college campuses across the country, offering students a snowflake-friendly way to learn about the gender spectrum. Created by the organization Trans Student Educational Resources, or TSER for short, the happy little graphic creature, a purple unicorn with its thoughts fixated on a colorful rainbow, uh, offer students quick little lessons on gender identity, gender expression, sex assignment at birth, physically attracted to and emotionally attracted to uh, issues, all the while providing them with a scale on the gender spectrum. Now, one unicorn poster at the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater offered students a, quote, opportunity to reflect on their own gender identity expression, sex, and sexuality. Uh, students on Twitter mocked it heavily uh, with the LOL. This is what the uh, UW-Whitewater spends its time and money on, uh, according to one student. At any rate, a gender unicorn event was also held at Ball State University by the Spectrum Organization. Uh, Monmouth University Gender Studies Student Club uses a slightly different version of the unicorn for promotional material, while Cedar Crest College, out there, organization, featured the unicorn at a student fair, at least according to Campus Reform. Uh, the graphic has some similarities to the character known as the uh, genderbred person <laughs> from a uh, separate organization, but the TSER said that the unicorn holds, quote, significant uh, changes to more accurately portray the distinction between gender, sex assignment at birth, and sexuality. Uh, we wanted to create a gender graphic that shows how queer and trans people view gender instead of the one straight says gender man. Uh, at least that's what the uh, TSER said while critiquing the gender-bred person. Uh, also quoting here, Biological sex is an ambiguous, <laughs> ambiguous word that has no scale uh, and no meaning besides that it is related to some sex characteristics. It is also harmful to trans people. Instead, we prefer sex assigned at birth, which provides a more accurate description of what the biological sex may be trying to communicate. Now, sex, whether referencing an array of sex characteristics or sex assigned at birth, is not exclusively determined through genitals, according to the TSER. Uh, there's no real mention of how they do uh, try to assign it. Uh, excuse me, but how in your mind is it? I mean, gender is a matter of what uh, gender is a matter of what chromosomes you have, period. And so this little cutesy little graphic is being used, I guess, to help uh, make sure that people understand that they can have a safe space too. All right, a, uh, another interesting story that folks probably ought to know a little bit about. Headline is uh, a 12-turn Democratic lawmaker showed up to work high on morphine, spent $51,000 on a psychic, and that's just some of what's going on. Uh, 
So what do you say we get into that one real quick? Uh, I'm going to give you a guess, give you an opportunity to guess, I should say, before I tell you. What political part? Oh, I already said it in the headline, so never mind. I don't get to. Anyway, Democratic Representative uh, Donna Dukes, a Texas lawmaker for more than 20 years who has been accused of corruption, once allegedly showed up at a House committee hearing and said she was high on morphine. And so she was honest about it. The uh, 12-term state representative arrived late to a March House Appropriations Committee hearing and said, quote, I know I'm talking a lot. I'm full of morphine and will be headed out of here soon, at least according to the court filings by the Travis County District Attorney's Office uh, this past week, uh, also reported by, by the Daily Mail. So, you know, folks are aware of it. Uh, according to the Mail... Uh, they said that authorities contend that the Democrat was noticeably impaired on one occasion while performing legislative duties at the Capitol. The charge and others appear in the court filings this week. Uh, Dukes faces trial October 16th on corruption charges. The Democrat is accused of using taxpayer funds to give a raise to a legislative aid to cover gas money for driving Dukes' daughter to and from school. Dukes is also accused of giving uh, investigators a different cell phone from the one they were seeking when they served her with a search warrant. So uh, we have uh, this warrant for you to turn over your cell phone. Oh, yeah, sure. Here, take this one. It's not the one I'm using, but take this one, which I'm pretty sure that's a crime. Uh, the DA's office also says that Duke spent $51,000 on a psychic from December of 2014 to January of 2016. Uh, that's nearly $1,000 a week. But the uh, filed court document doesn't say if she used public money for the psyche. So I guess you're questioning her judgment at the very least. But if she did use public money for that, well, that's a different story too. Uh, the Travis County Prosecutor's Court filing this week is intended to inform Duke's attorneys of allegations against her that will be asserted at trial. She's not yet facing charges pertaining to the allegations, including in the filings. Uh, prosecutors still want to salvage a felony case against the lawmaker, uh, at least according to uh, the American statesman and what they reported. The DA's office last week placed 13 felony charges against Dukes. Well, 13. <laughs> 13 felony charges against Dukes on hold after a legislative official gave conflicting information about reimbursement vouchers that Dukes is alleged to have falsified in 2013 and 2014 for days she did not travel to the Capitol. So um, basically what she, they're trying to do is uh, double-check and make sure they can hit her with all 13 felony charges. Now, Dukes previously had announced plans to resign, citing years-long medical concerns. But uh, she reneged in January and was sworn in for her 12th term. So uh, I'm going to step down. I'm going to step down. Never mind. <laughs> the uh, filing also says that Dukes missed 65% of the time during the 2017 legislative or regular session and 36% of the time in the special session. So, hmm, she's not really doing 
much of the not that much that the folks of her district are asking her to do. Granted, uh, worst case scenario, you're expected to show up and to uh, fulfill your obligations. Quick shout out to Kel, who's uh, joined us in the chat room. Hey, Kel, how are you? So uh, she's not asked to to do that much, but she can't even manage to show up. She's obviously got some drug issues, and she seems to uh, think for some reason that the people's money is really her money. Now, I don't know about any of that. That seems a bit much to me, but uh, you know, it, she's certainly not the first Democrat to get the mistaken idea that the people's money are really hers to do with as she sees fit. It's just a shame that we continue to see stuff like this transpire. Uh, the morphine thing is disconcerting. Uh, the fact that she was willing to announce it is also disconcerting, but uh, more so than any of the rest of it. What you really have to keep in mind is that this woman has been reelected to this office more than a few times. She spent nearly two decades doing this job. Why are we not holding people accountable? I mean that is really – that's one of the major themes of this show. We've got to hold elected officials accountable, and if we can't hold them accountable, nothing's going to change. And when I say if we can't, obviously we can. It's up to us to do it though. We can't sit back and expect other people to do it. That's obviously not going to happen. We'd never have gotten in the shape we're in if that was going to happen. If we could trust these people to self-regulate and self-police, we wouldn't ever have an issue like this. Okay. Also, another uh, another news story that's probably going to uh, fall into the categories of headlines you may have missed. Because again, not a lot of coverage on this story. But it seems like another Obama official has allegedly unmasked hundreds of Americans during the final days uh, of the Obama administration. Uh, yeah, this is a big deal, and it's something that we should be paying much closer attention to. Now, again, there's been some coverage of it, uh, more so with conservative news outlets than uh, the more mainstream, but still not enough. So this is a headline that you may have missed, but Samantha Powers, who happened to be Obama's former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Unmasked Americans at uh, such a rapid rate in the administration's final days in office that she averaged more than one request per day in 2016. Now, according to multiple sources who could not comment publicly on the matter, they told Fox News that over 260 requests were made by Powers in 2016 to identify Americans whose names surfaced in foreign intelligence surveillance. Uh, the details emerged ahead of an expected appearance by Powers next month on Capitol Hill. She's one of several Obama administration officials facing congressional scrutiny for the role in seeking the identities of Trump associates in intelligence reports. But the interest in her actions is particularly high. Now, that's the report. Now, the report indicates that the reason that Congress is especially interested in Powers' role in unmasking Trump officials is due to a July 27th letter sent from the House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez to Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats. In the letter, Nunez uh, says that the committee learned, quote, that one official whose position had no apparent 
intelligence-related function, made hundreds of unmasking requests during the final year of the Obama administration. Now, Fox News added that power is believed to be the official that the letter was referring to and that uh, although previous UN ambassadors have made unmasking requests, the number is usually in the low double digits. Power is just one of the latest Obama officials caught up in the unmasking scandal. His former National Security Advisor Susan Rice has recently been caught lying about the unmasking of uh, Trump officials. While it was not necessarily a crime to unmask U.S. citizens in foreign intelligence surveillance, it is illegal to release their names, something that happened when a person with access to the information leaked former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's name to the Washington Post. So what is the point of all the unmasking? Well, the unmasking is so that more people than not can have access to who these individuals were. These names were never intended to be released to the public and should not be unless you actually find evidence of wrongdoing and are pursuing criminal uh, charges. At that point, you do reach this level of uh, this level of public scrutiny once the case becomes public. But what would be the point of this? Well, obviously, this was all about what can we do to undermine Trump? What can we do to undermine Trump? What can we do to undermine Trump? Well, if we unmask everybody, let's look at who Donald Trump wanted in his cabinet. Business people, movers and shakers, people who knew how to get things done, people who would be willing to try and work with him to try and change the culture of Washington from delay, 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 and let's charge them as much money as we can go to one of let's get things done at the speed of business. Well, the sad news for Donald Trump is that there is no politician that's currently in D.C. that is going to willingly go along with it. You're going to have to drag them kicking and screaming, and it's not going to happen overnight. In fact, it's up to us, the American people, to continue to send more people to D.C. that will be an ally to Donald Trump in doing exactly that. Now, that's not to say they shouldn't stand on principle and that they should just follow Donald Trump blindly or that they should just do whatever. No, they need to act on behalf of their constituents, and they need to stand on principles, and there are times when Donald Trump is wrong. But Donald Trump is allowed to make mistakes for two reasons. Number one, he is a human being. That's a pretty big uh, reason, and I think most of us should be willing to accept that. And number two, he is not accustomed to fulfilling the role of commander-in-chief. He's got a huge learning curve that he's having to learn on the job. Being the chief executive of the uh, executive branch of the United States centralized government is a little different than being the chief executive of the Trump empire. And there's a whole different level of balancing act, and there's a whole different ballgame, if you'll forgive the pun, given the recent uh, uh, the recent controversy over the NFL and the NBA. So what is the deal with somebody who has no real reason to be unmasking? Well, it's just part of a paper trail more than anything. They're looking to try and have as many innocent-looking people doing this, which makes it harder and harder to track it back to Barack Obama. Now, Barack Obama 
may not have actually given this order. I mean, and I know a lot of people are going to say, what are you talking about, Tim? This is obviously – well, no, because nothing that has transpired when Barack Obama was in office is obviously Barack Obama. There's a lot that's obviously Valerie Jarrett. There's a lot that may even obviously be Michelle Obama, but Barack Obama was one of the laziest presidents we've ever had. He did very little while he was in the office, even when it came to doing the damage to the country that he wanted to do. Most of it he just told other people to do, or he didn't have anything at all to do with it. He's like, well, yeah, do what you want to do. I'll sign off. I'm going golfing. Here in the land of Barack Obama, I'm going to the golf course. Hold all my calls. Valerie, take care. And that's it. So this it's still entirely possible that Barack Hussein Alu Akbar Obama knew absolutely nothing about this, but it certainly had to come from somewhere. And I think given the memos that we've seen, the stuff over time that we've seen, it's become very clear, sadly, very clear, that Valerie Jarrett was running things way more than Barack Obama was. Valerie Jarrett was essentially the person that was actually occupying the White House to the extent that things – if something needed to get done, she was the one that was making sure it got done. And you know, be that as it may, whatever purposes you want to buy into, you know, that's it's just the way it is. So anyway, it's something else we do need to keep an eye on, and we do need to make sure that no matter what else happens – uh, okay, I, actually, I'm going to go over all that in the second half of the show. So after the, the break coming up, we'll be getting into that. But thanks for your uh, interest. <laughs> all right, so uh, you know, we're still facing these ridiculous uh, sets of circumstances where these people are getting away with crap. And there's two more quick stories that I really want to get to before the uh, – uh, bottom of the hour break, so I'm going to have to push hard. One of these, actually, uh, Kel and Gary, uh, you, you're going to love this because it's a story from Canada. Um, here's a new thing. Evidently, it's a thing. You've, of course, heard of the social warriors, you know, social uh, justice warriors and the like, but have you heard of justice pricing? Uh, if you haven't, you can categorize this one as a headline you may have missed too. Evidently, this super woke Canadian filmmaker, Sherzaz uh, uh, Higgins. I'm, I mean, the Higgins, I know it's right. Sherzaz, uh, Sherzaz. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm getting the first name right. Uh, no, uh, no disrespect meant on the name pronunciation. Uh, Anyway, this Canadian filmmaker has implemented his own so-called justice pricing policy where he charges white males an extra $5 to view his movie. The 27-year-old filmmaker, and yes, he is a millennial. Can you believe it? <laughs> the 27-year-old uh, filmmaker is charging white males $15 a ticket while he's charging everybody else just $10 a ticket. So apparently this is a way to level out all that white male privilege, I suppose. I don't know. But Higgins told the Canadian press that the justice pricing is not a publicity stunt but 
based on the purchasing power of individual groups and price discrimination. Uh, also stating, quote, this is not a publicity stunt. Uh, organizers are pushing forward because we believe it's an important piece of overall conversation that is happening in society right now. Now, how could this be an important part of the conversation that's happening when this wasn't happening before? I mean, really, I, you're injecting this, trying to make yourself more important. But anyway, Higgins said that while there has been criticism, and I bet there has been, he, he has also heard from women who said that uh, they pay more than men for goods and services, including haircuts and hygienic and cosmetic products. So at any rate, the 70-minute documentary-style flick uh, gives viewers a behind-the-scenes glance at stand-up comedians prepping for a show. That's what this movie is about. But the story gets even more millennial-like, if you can believe that, because Higgins was apparently too scared to initially put his name on the pricing policy, previously speaking to the press under the pseudonym Sid Mohammed. Now, Higgins said, quote, he used a, a false name to promote it because he was concerned about backlash. I'm just going to come beat you up. No, the thing here is, is that the angry people who are going to be mad that you're charged. And then they're still going to give you the $15. Bring members to come see this. Unless you're actually trying to become a nobody's talking about that end of it. But uh, I'm afraid someone's going to hurt me. So I thought if I use Sid then you need to be willing to stand behind it. You're not a social justice. You want to be a filmmaker, you have to be prepared to take criticism. It's terrific. Line of work, sir, if you're not prepared to handle criticism. And again, guess what? If you are picking on white men and expect that's going to be your danger, liberal. Well, okay, and let me read you about it. They're usually leftists. I had this whole thing in the last episode about how we can't keep using the same words. So, the same. 
at any rate, that's the overall message that we're sending out here. It's stupid, are you? Overcharging white men, he insists, is not retribution. But is the underlying that your message is that you think white. And she'd be saying, you know, I don't. that aren't white men. That like to pretend exist. And I'm... You know what? That is pretty stupid. I don't like that idea. And they'll say... make that part of your business model if that's what you want to do. But stand by the consequences. That's all I'm saying. Stand by the consequences. So what is the consequence here? Well, the consequence here, first and foremost, is that people are not going to come see your movie. But also, you know, if if you would really want to stand up there and be a strong advocate be a strong advocate for your social justice mentality and not be a coward and not try to hide behind a fake name and not to do this ridiculous stuff, then all you need to do is be that person. Stand by what you're saying and put your name out there. (sighs) Evidently, I'm still having some serious audio issues. Hmm. You know, at this point, I really don't know what the uh, – let me try to make some adjustments here real quick. Can you guys hear me now? Anybody in the chat room? Okay. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that the biggest thing I've got going on here is probably some uh, some bandwidth issues. 
but at this point, I really shouldn't have any. That's the only bloody thing that's even online at the moment. So at any rate, thanks for your patience. I appreciate this. It's been an ongoing thing. Um, everything here on my equipment checks out. Uh, so uh, at any rate, let's get back to it. Uh, point being, plain and simple, that uh, if you're going to try to be a social justice warrior, you really need to have the courage to put your name to it up front. Otherwise, you're just a coward. You're just a little piece of poo. And as your little piece of poo that you're being, even your fellow social justice warriors who, for whatever their cause may be, they're not going to respect you. And if you're going to try to make your point this way, being uh, utilizing these movies like this, then uh, guess what? You have got to be willing to take those hits, and you have to be willing to stand up and explain why you're doing it. And even if you're the most misguided person on the planet, be prepared. Uh, be prepared to, to take those hits. It's just that simple. I, and I don't understand where suddenly you're being uh, suddenly you're being hailed. Where is the consistency here? I mean, even the social justice warriors, there's a good number of them that are going to turn against you here, but they would have supported you otherwise. Now, I'm going to take the bottom of the hour break right about now. And when I return, we're going to have the conversation, uh, one more social justice conversation that I think we need to have. Uh, and then we're going to start rolling into what exactly is going on. And there's still plenty of social justice uh, tie-ins to all of this. So we'll uh, we'll get into that. I will look for uh, any and all comments that you folks have to, to add. And again, I want to thank all of you for being here. A uh, special thanks to uh, uh, COG for uh, hopping in the chat room and joining us. And uh, evidently, uh, some folks are listening live but are not in the chat room. So I want to thank uh, those folks. Uh, they're also uh, sending me messages. Looks like they're listening uh, on directly via phone. So glad to have all you guys here. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to take that break. We're going to go ahead and play the uh, Edwards Notebook and, of course, the uh, Songs and Soldiers uh, tips of the day. Songs and stories for soldiers, I should say. And uh, we'll go from there. Uh, but at any rate, I do apologize for the technical glitches, and I would very much love at some point to uh, get all this fixed away. But anyway, uh, here is Ron Edwards. If the Monument Bashers and other leftists trying to eliminate evil memories from society... I find it ironic that they themselves are creating evil nightmares of oppression and bigotry. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, on one hand, the monument bashers say that they are eliminating images of slavery that irritate them so much. Even leftist Nancy Pelosi suddenly gets the heebie-jeebies when she walks past the same Confederate monuments in the Capitol that she has strolled past for 30 years without so much as a slight notice of their existence. Speaking of slavery, have you noticed how neither the monument bashers or other leftists hardly ever mention the disdain of the current slave trade in the Middle East where black Christians are held in bondage by brutish Islamists who view black people as nothing more than slaves? who God created without souls? The truth is, monument bashers and other leftists 
really are not concerned about monuments or dead slaveholders or Confederate flags. They are actually focused on George Soros' mission to destroy American history and disrupt the successful function of our constitutionally limited republic, which stands as the last natural hope against his globalist ambitions. I'm Ron Edwards. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Dan Perkins here for Songs and Stories for Soldiers with your veterans tip of the day. Did you know that the suicide rate for women vets is 12 times that of their sisters in civilian life? Did you know that one in four women vets feel uncomfortable about talking to people about their mental health issues? Did you know almost 600,000 women vets in America are suffering from PTSD? It's time to help. It's time for all of us to encourage our sisters, mothers, and wives to get help by contacting their local VA hospital clinic or community-based health care center. So if you know a woman vet that is suffering, go to va.gov and find their nearest VA facility. This has been Dan Perkins of Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us with your veterans tip of the day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am back. Thanks for staying with me through the break-in. Thanks for staying with me through uh, my technical issues. I do want to send a special thank you out to my brother, Gary Tapp, who has uh, been offering to assist me and uh, try to help me get this straightened out. And I will definitely be taking him up on that at a future date, but I'm afraid by the time he'd get here now, probably wouldn't do much good. (laughs) At any rate, uh, I do thank you, sir, and I do appreciate it. Now, let's get on with it before I run out of time for all this other stuff. Uh, This one uh, is also something that I think definitely uh, has been underreported. Conservative Stacey Dash uh, is firing back after Chelsea Handler uh, calls her a black white supremacist. Uh, An interesting term, actually. Uh, So Handler uh, called uh, Stacey Dash and Ben Carson and uh, Sheriff David Clark – black white supremacist and uh, the actress and outspoken conservative Stacy uh, is firing back after the liberal comedian and uh, <clears throat> so-called talk show host uh, referred to her disparagingly. Uh, Handler uh, was listing all the different types of racist there are in America for a show promo and uh, ended her predictable Trump bashing rant with an attack on Dash and former Republican presidential candidate uh, Ben Carson and former Milwaukee Sheriff uh, David Clark, identifying them as black-white supremacists or black people who think white people are better than them. (laughs) Really. Well, Dash returned fire in her own response to Handler, uh, which was published by Young Conservatives, uh, stating, quote, Myself, Ben Carson, Sheriff David Clark, are white supremacists in black skin. Is that it? Uh, according to the Clueless Star. Uh, Continuing to quote, because we disagree with the liberal left agenda, a wealthy liberal celebrity gets to slander a brilliant and famous neurosurgeon, a respected man of the law, and me. There is an opportunity to invoke white privilege here somewhere, I'm sure. Wait, I forgot. That's a title exclusive to conservatives only. Now, Dash then uh, steamrolled Handler's uh, veiled racism, explaining her upbringing and rhetorically asking if that was black enough for Handler. In fact, uh, here's what she said, quote, maybe read my autobiography and 
uh, about my childhood of being exposed to drugs, violence, and abuse while growing up in the Bronx. Does that make me black enough for you and anyone else who shares this judgmental and simplistic assessment of my beliefs? Handler, as you might recall, vowed to leave the country if uh, Donald Trump were to win the 2016 election. Not only has she, uh, very disappointing to me, reneged on that promise, but she's also cried pathetically on her show after her pantsuit goddess fell short of her coronation. Clearly, Handler is still suffering immensely from the loss. Poor girl. But it's nice to know that people like uh, Stacey Dash aren't just going to sit back and take it. She wanted to make it clear that it's it's not okay, it's not acceptable for you to sit back and say these things. What is it going to take for the left to wake up, especially the Hollywood left in particular? There is no place for these folks to go that they would be treated better than they are here. If they actually got the changes that they're for, then they wouldn't want to be here anymore either. And, and that's the funniest thing yet. I mean, we, we no longer have this uh, this melting pot thing going on because we have leftists that are out there that are just on board with the Democrats, the Democrats, the Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, um, universal health care, universal health care, universal health uh, Who's going to pay for that? It doesn't matter. Obviously, we're going to pay for it. And so they make these attacks, and it's really good for somebody like Stacey Dash to step up and say, hey, you know what? You know, Ben Carson's story, he came up from a, a very – uh, challenging uh, place, but he worked hard, and he took advantage of the circumstances and the opportunities, and he made something spectacular out of himself. One of the world's most renowned uh, child neurosurgeons, uh, pediatric was the word I was looking for, but I couldn't get to there fast enough. But uh, at any rate, a pediatric neurosurgeon, world class, he got there growing up out of the hood. Stacy Dash had a troublesome childhood, and she managed to work her way up to become a Hollywood star and a conservative. And, and it's funny how these folks can move forward with it. And, and it brings me to this quick statement that I wanted to get in before I get to my next story, and we basically open things up for the greater conversation of today's topic. Because I was having a conversation the other day, and uh, it was a uh, – Essentially, I was speaking for a classroom, but we had hooked up via Skype, and uh, the whole idea was I was involved with expressing uh, the values of conservative conservatism, you know, just conservative thought, and, and in general, how you can apply conservatism to excel. And the uh, the topic had come up that they recently had been studying personal finance, and uh, they were supposed to be making out a budget. And uh, one of the kids in the classroom asked the question, point blank, he said, well, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly how they worded it, but uh, I don't uh, remember the exact phrasing. But at any rate, basically what they told me is that they were going to be uh, living on food stamps and, and in public housing, so 
they don't need to include housing or food in their budget, so why were they counted off for that? Well, here's the thing about that, and here was my response. That Well, it's, it's pretty clear that you feel like uh, you're in a hopeless situation and that's the way you're going to grow up, but let me ask you something. Who do you look to as an example of the kind of life you would like to have? Would you like to have a life like some of these hip-hop artists who are rolling around in huge mansions and who have a different luxury car or a sports car for each day of the week, some of them even having two for each day of the week? Or um, would you rather just be stuck in a life like uh, Jerry the Wino down on the corner? Which would you rather have? And, of course, there were some chuckles and some laughs and uh, – you know, a lot of uh, folks, of course, just went ahead and said, yeah, we'd rather do the thing where we have the money. It's like, well, how do you expect to have the money if you don't take personal responsibility? And there was silence. I was like, well, here's the bottom line here. I don't care if you believe in being responsible for yourself or not. That's all well and good. That's something you're going to grow into if you have the right mindset. But which one of you wants some government bureaucrat to tell you how much you're worth because that's what you're doing when you just sit back and you accept public housing and you just accept the food stamps and you don't do anything to improve your situation. There was silence. No one had a smart aleck remark. Nobody had anything negative to say back. I was like, I want you to think about who is going to determine your worth. Who's going to determine what value you bring to society? Because if you get out and you work hard and you hustle and you put in the effort, you can do great things. The opportunities are out there for you, and it doesn't matter what color you are. Although if you are certain colors in this country, there are extra opportunities that you could take advantage of, but it's up to you to do it. You have to do the work. If that's the life you're going to accept – Understand that you're accepting that. For one, I hope that each and every one of you choose, chooses to determine for yourself what your worth is. That each and every one of you chooses to accept what your value to society is going to be. Be like the folks that you want to emulate in so much as they're working hard. They're determining their own value. They're not settling for what's being given. And it seems to have had an impact. And I've gotten some positive feedback since then from a uh, person who had asked me to, to speak. So I, anyway, I wanted to share that because I think it's an important note right now because that seems to be the mindset that a lot of these millennial folks seem to have. It's a case of we're going to take what we're given and it's okay. So... No, it's not. Don't let somebody else determine for you what you're worth because I guarantee you it's never going to be what it ought to be. No one is ever going to value as much as you should value yourself, and no one is ever going to just give you more than what you've earned. You're hard-pressed to get paid what you have earned. No one's ever going to give you more Unless, of course, the government keeps raising minimum wage, but that's another story. Okay, <laughs> anyway, uh, here's another quick story that I think is important. We really need to touch on this, 
And this is kind of a crossover point because this takes us to the main conversation points, and I hope you guys will uh, be actively engaged with our main topic. But uh, this past week, Ellen DeGeneres told Megyn Kelly that Trump cannot in she is in that that Trump is in no way welcome on the Ellen DeGeneres show, stating that he's dangerous to gay people. She said, quote, I can't have someone who I feel is not only dangerous for the country and for me personally as a gay woman, but to the world. Now, this was when Megan was visiting Ellen. But anyway, on, on DeGeneres' uh, show on Wednesday, uh, she told Megan Kelly that she would not invite President Donald Trump on her show because he is, as I already said, not only dangerous for the country and for her personally as a gay woman, but to the world. Ellen made the comment after she had asked uh, Megyn Kelly if she'd be willing to invite Trump on her new show. And Megyn Kelly today, which is uh, this new – the third hour of the Today Show uh, upcoming, uh, supposed to be starting Monday. But uh, despite the bad blood between uh, Trump and Kelly, the former Fox News host said that uh, uh, yes, that she would be willing to have him on and that she would invite him on, in fact, which seemed to surprise Ellen. And so uh, – it just kind of went from there. And the one thing that struck me here is that Ellen is one of these people that I actually do still kind of like. Uh, I have not been completely alienated from uh, from uh, Ellen DeGeneres. I, I think I think she does a uh, a good show. I think she has a great sense of humor. She's open about being gay, but she doesn't constantly throw it in your face or make you feel like you're somehow inferior because you're not gay or you know, she just she, it's not about bashing anybody and it's always about celebration of life and having fun. So I still kind of like the fact that if you didn't know she was gay, there's literally hundreds of episodes, uh, the hundreds of times you can watch her and there would be no indication. She doesn't make everything about it. So to me that's a plus. She understands that part of it. But here she is talking to Megyn Kelly, who she thought would be a sister in arms uh, against the Donald because, of course, the the little bit of a, a tiff that uh, she and Donald had during the campaign. It's like, yeah, Donald said some things he shouldn't have, and uh, Megyn Kelly was doing some stuff that uh, yeah, was questionable as to what the intent was with the question. So, I mean, it's naturally the… The Donald Trump response is predictable. And I think that's really what uh, she was trying to do was to showcase the Donald Trump response. Everything becomes personal. You're the evil one. But regardless of all that, when Megyn Kelly – Megyn Kelly is still doing a news show. Now, it's supposed to be a softer, fluffier part of the Today Show lineup kind of thing, but she's still doing a news show. And when you're doing news, there is no way that when the Donald does something that's noteworthy, he shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be mentioned. And there's no way that if he's willing to come on uh, the airwaves, that you should turn it down because whether it goes well or it becomes disastrous for you or for him, it's still ratings gold. All you're going to do is make your show better. But the thing Alan said there that surprises me and that. Really kind of stuck, and it really, really shows the danger of us losing the culture war. Why, it's, again, it's important for us to fight and win the culture war is that Ellen was very sincere about it. Ellen believes 
that Donald Trump is dangerous to gay people. The one thing I find myself wanting to do more than anything is reach out to Ellen and find out from her why she thinks that. Tell me one thing Donald Trump has done that is dangerous to gay people. As far as I know, he hasn't done anything policy-wise that has anything at all to do with gay people. The closest thing, the absolute closest thing that I can think of is the executive order stating uh, no open transgenders serving in any capacity in the U.S. military. But transgenderism is not the same as homosexuality, and most homosexuals will be real quick to tell you that. So again… Why does she believe this? Well, she is in Hollywood. She has this circle of friends that are probably telling her the same things that all these other liberals. Ellen DeGeneres, who in my mind has always seemed like a reasonably intelligent individual who just really enjoys her life and enjoys doing what she does. And you can't complain when you get to do what you like to do. For your work, you know, if that's your job, if you are loving your job, then you are way ahead of the curve. But she, like I said, she's always seemed like a reasonably intelligent person to me too, and for her to legitimately believe, to legitimately believe that Donald Trump is dangerous for gay people, it just it really drives that point home to me because again, you know, yes, she's hanging out in Hollywood, she's in with all these other folks, but for crying out loud, where does this really come from? This is what people in her circle have told her. And this is what we are fighting against. It's the culture war that has to be fought and has to be won because people are out there just buying into what other people are telling them and they're not using any kind of critical thinking. They're not deciding for themselves. They're not looking to try and find truth. They're not looking to see. And one of the proudest moments, I, I have a coworker, and she does not keep uh, track of news events. So oftentimes, I will be her source of information. And uh, you know, I was asking her what she thought was the most outrageous stories of about three different stories that I was throwing out, and I mentioned this one. And her immediate response was to ask to hear it. She wanted to hear it in context. She wanted to hear exactly what was said. Now, I was proud of her for that because that's what smart people should do. Don't just take a headline at face value because you will more often than not – be sadly misinformed if you just jump on what <laughs> the headline says without reading the article. You can't take headlines at face value. You just can't, and she wasn't willing to. And again, this is somebody, like I said, who does not ordinarily pay much attention to the news. But this got her attention because she knew who Ellen was. This got her attention because she thought, well, maybe she was just joking. Maybe she was just trying to be funny, trying to get a, a chuckle from the audience. But when you see the footage, and you can find this uh, on uh, YouTube, you can actually you can go to the Tap into the Truth Facebook page. I have a link up to it, 
and no matter where you're what you're looking for it is clear that she was she wasn't joking it wasn't a a, uh, a case of trying to get a uh, a chuckle this was her being completely sincere this was her honestly saying that Donald Trump can never be on her show because she has to respect or admire somebody before she's going to have them on the show. Obviously, she doesn't respect or admire Donald Trump, and that's fine. Again, I expect leftists to do that. But she was completely sincere when she uttered the words she thinks that to her personally as a gay woman that Donald Trump is dangerous to her. So that's you know it it, it just I, I can't really move past that. I think it's important to talk about it. and I, and I don't want to uh get on to some kind of Ellen bashing uh tirade or anything like that because again I, I see this as a case of Ellen probably like a lot of other Hollywood elitists, they're just victims of the company they keep. We've got to get folks back to that initial response that my coworker, who I do not have permission to throw her name out there, otherwise I would, <laughs> I want everybody to get back to that initial response of, let me hear it myself. Let me check on that myself. Let me get back to the source material on that. Don't just tell me what she did. Don't just read me a headline. Let me hear it in context so I know if she meant it or not. And that was absolutely – it's an awesome response, and I hope that we get there and can stay there. Now, yeah, that's that's where we're at. So uh, – Anyway, let's go ahead and switch gears again, shall we? Let me let me try to. It's time to get to the uh, the main uh, crux of uh, today's circumstances and situation. Donald Trump finds himself in a interesting uh, set of circumstances. And my question is, is that intentional or not? I started off uh, a little while ago uh, on social media asking folks if they would like to share their thoughts on the Trump NFL controversy, uh, letting them know that I would be putting some of them on air. A lot of these folks are some local folks that I know. A couple of them... Uh, are not, but uh, I'm going to share some of the comments at this point. Uh, Susie Woods, she says, for the ones who kneel, I, I hope you're praying. Uh, you're going to need it. Uh, yeah, it never hurts to take a few moments to prayer. So, <laughs> Susie, you're absolutely right. Uh, Kay Lemons Christopher uh, saying, I am boycotting the NFL. I stand behind President Trump. Uh, not the ones who live off the American dream and then turn their heads when it's time to honor America. Uh, Terry Kennedy, go Trump, boycott NFL. Uh, Todd M. Thayed uh, says, the very thing the players are doing is what makes this country great. 
They have a right to protest nonviolently, and they're doing it. Do I agree with their protest? No, but I agree with their right to do it. Okay, and then there was a response to the, that from Kay Lemons Christopher saying, let them do it when they're not at work, which is a great point, a point I was going to make in my own little uh, monologue later. Uh, Tim Miller, I think it needs to be done in a different manner. To me, the NFL governing body should be more proactive, stand for the troops and the history of the flag and allow the players to wear items on the wrist uh, stating their issues of protest. For some, I know what they're protesting, but for others, their line is skewed. They have the right of free speech. It just needs to be done in a way that doesn't dishonor our country. All right, so those are uh, some great comments that I've gotten so far. Uh, anybody in the chat room would like to, to throw in any comments that you'd like in regards to the uh, Donald Trump NFL uh, current issue before we really get talking? Okay, feel free to uh, put them in there in the chat room at any point you'd like to, and I will read them as uh, see fit. And uh, in the meanwhile, here's here's my overriding question: In a week where we know that a new health care bill is on the line and most likely going to fail. <laughs> And in a week, we know that Donald Trump plans on rolling out his tax reform plan with the, the specifics. Does this seem like good timing? Now, to the average person, we'd say no, but then we normally think you want to be spending your time working towards your, your goals, your agenda. You want to try and move the ball down the field. Notice I'm using football metaphors. You, you want to try and move the ball down the field uh, and eventually score by utilizing your agenda. So for most of us, this would serve as the kind of distraction that would be utilizing our energies there, make me appear more divisive, and probably prevent me from getting more folks to support my legislative agenda. So as you're thinking about what is this legislative agenda, what does it help? What does it hurt? Is this really a distraction? If it is a distraction, who is it really distracting? Is it taking uh, Donald Trump away from his efforts to still garner support for the legislative agenda? Or does it allow him to continue to work behind the scenes – unhindered by the media who otherwise would be all over everything he did with a microscope because now the microscope is clearly turned at the culture war. So the question is, is Donald Trump attempting to use the culture war as a distraction to help him be more effective directly doing his actual job? Is he perfectly content with playing the media as he's done several times before to get their focus and attention elsewhere while they quietly put this together. Now, I don't know. I've heard people insinuate that, yes, this is exactly how Donald Trump operates it. This is exactly what he does, and he's brilliant at it. 
Well, if that's what he does and it ends up working, then yes, yes, he's brilliant because even I didn't see it coming, and I've been paying attention. But we have so many more serious issues, and here's something that really, really kind of sticks in my craw a little bit. Healthcare is a big deal, and we do need to get something done with it, and there are stories all over the board, several topics that should be hit on and should be clearly discussed, starting with but not limited to what does Graham Cassidy do? How is Graham Cassidy different from Obamacare? Is this the repeal and replace we were promised? Is this repeal of any kind? Is this even replace of any reasonable fashion? It doesn't matter because it's not going to pass. It's not. You can write it down right now if you need to. It's not going to pass. John McCain is a firm no because John McCain likes Obamacare. He's liked it from the beginning. He ran on claiming that he was going to repeal it, but he likes it. He wants it. Why? Because John McCain probably should have a D at the end of his name instead of an R. In fact, I will go you one further. John McCain should probably have a P at the end of his name because he is a hardcore progressive as they self-identify. Uh, you've got uh, Susan Collins who's leaning no because she has serious concerns. You have Lisa Murkowski in Alaska who is – uh, strongly leaning no, almost a solid no, and that was last I heard, and she may be a firm no by now because uh, it seems to be changing. You have Rand Paul for a very different reason. Rand Paul says, I'm only voting for a repeal. This is not a repeal, so I'm a no. And if I hear one more person, and you know who I'm talking to, you know who I'm you, – I know you're listening right now, Diane, and <laughs> I know you know that I'm talking to you. I hear one more so-called conservative voice giving Rand Paul down the road for standing up on his principles. I'm going to come visit you, and it's going to be unpleasant. Okay, it won't be that bad. You know how I am, <laughs> and I love you, Diane. But the thing here, <clears throat> plain and simple, is this isn't about, oh, we're just going to be stuck with Obamacare. We are better off with Obamacare until they're serious about fixing it. I have made that point a dozen times, and that is exactly the point that Rand Paul is playing. But I have heard a lot of conservative folks who were ready to stand with Rand Paul before when he's voted against the previous bills that were offered that are now, oh, well, you must be for Obamacare if you're not going to stand up. No. He said it to start with, and he's not backing down from the principle. He's standing on the principle. Obamacare must be repealed. There really doesn't matter if there's a replacement because the bottom line is the federal government should not be involved with our health care in the first place. A few simple regulatory issues, okay, maybe. Depends on which ones. Let's look at it. Some things maybe the federal government does need to be involved with, but other things, no, not at all. Should not be there. Get the heck out. And Rand Paul is standing up against it because what does it not do? It does not repeal Obamacare. And it doesn't. This makes it a slightly different version of Obamacare Lite, not all that dissimilar from the Obamacare Lite we had before. It's just this one offers up a little more power to the states. And by power, it means that we're sending the money that we're going directly to insurance companies to the states to decide if they're going to go to an insurance company or not. The concept of the government picking winners or losers the concept of certain states receiving more money because of Obamacare mandates than other states. Well, why? Well, because some states chose not to expand Medicaid. 
Well, those states made that determination based on real-world circumstances and real-world standards that are actually um, conservatively, fiscally – what's the word I'm looking for? Fiscally sound policies. Look, Medicaid and Medicare is not great health coverage to begin with. Why is that the model? It shouldn't be. If you want to find ways to make health care more accessible, you shouldn't be wasting your time worrying about health insurance in the first place. And the Jimmy Kimmel test, if I hear somebody say Jimmy Kimmel test one more time, I am going to scream. So I'm probably going to say it one more time myself, and I will promise not to scream directly into the microphone. Although if the mic keeps acting up, maybe it's not going to matter. So the Jimmy Kimmel test, ah! Where does Jimmy Kimmel get off with his uh, conversation about this anyway? How does he suddenly get held up as the king of healthcare? He had a son who had to have uh, surgery. It's a good thing that he was here in the States where he was able to get top-notch care, and it's a good thing that at least as far as we know, based on everything that's been said, that things went very well for his son. And God bless Jimmy Kimmel's son, and I'm glad to hear it. But do not pretend for a second, Mr. Kimmel, that you were utilizing Obamacare. Obamacare did not make that happen for you. And do not pretend for a second that somebody else who's not independently wealthy or doesn't work for ABC, whose ABC's insurance evidently from everything I hear is phenomenal, would love to have that policy. I couldn't personally pay for it, and obviously they're not going to hire me to work for ABC anytime soon. My political slant's a little different than theirs. Thank goodness that that was available, but do not pretend for a second that you have to have Obamacare or you have to have a corporate-sponsored Cadillac plan in order to have uh, done this. Because the hospital in question that performed the surgery does dozens of charitable pediatric surgeries a month. The very doctor that performed uh, Jimmy Kimmel's son's surgery does half of those surgeries. He, he donates his time. He has gotten to a point where he has become economically uh, well-off enough that he feels like he should give back to the communities, and he does exactly that. Now, is there certainly a situation where it's problematic if you don't live close to where Jimmy Kimball's son got care? Well, yeah. Not every doctor does that, but this is one of the best doctors in the country and one of the best pediatric hospitals in the country, and they donate their time, their equipment, their services, including the follow-up care, at least 12 times a month. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it still makes the point that they're not the only facility out there that does this. People have access to health care. It's the affordability end of it that's difficult. Insurance is not supposed to be a give-me. It's not supposed to be some kind of – it's – I see we've got some comments uh, about Jimmy Kimmel in the chat room. 
But you know, insurance is not supposed to be some type of uh, set of circumstances where it's an entitlement. That's the word I was looking for. Insurance isn't an entitlement. It's supposed to be you spending a little bit of your money while things are okay, uh, hoping that you never have to cash it in while you uh, kind of hedge your bet. The insurance company is gambling that you're not going to have to use their service. That's why they charge you what they charge you. And the reason rates can stay low is if they're not spending very much money and if you stay healthy. I mean that's the gamble. That's the risk. They're profitable when they don't have to pay you out. Uh, and you, you're not off the hook even when you have really good insurance. There are still deductibles. There's still so much that you're going to be responsible for. And I literally heard the statement made today. Literally heard the statement made that it makes it unaffordable. What's good, because they were talking about how the new bill doesn't necessarily say that states aren't going to be able to tweak with uh, with what the uh, rates are. In fact, it clearly says that uh, for people with pre-existing conditions, states will be allowed to charge – well, to establish higher premiums. That somehow, somehow that's wrong because you know the states have to be able to pay for this. But then the statement was made: What good does it do to have this coverage if no one can afford it? For those of you listening that are here in the states, because you know, most of the folks in the chat room are from Canada right now, well, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, but you know, COG here, you're an American. You're having to suffer through this Affordable Health Care Act. A lot of the folks that are listening, uh, you know, you're free to message me via the other means. But at this point, it's a very good question that's asked. What good does it do? Have insurance if you can't afford the policy. How many of us can actually afford the policies we have now? How many people are not going to have a policy next? If you're here in the state of Tennessee, Blue Cross Blue Shield is coming back next year because the one remaining company, Humana, who was here is jumping out of the exchanges. Blue Cross Blue Shield is coming back under special circumstances. And you know, they've said that they're coming back. But that's still not necessarily a done deal. So if you can't get care and if you can't afford the care and if you do get the care, I mean I, I just told you the other day. You know, I, I had to come up with the extra cash to pay for Cheyenne's uh, uh, medical visits. We had insurance. It's a decent enough plan, but it's still an additional $800 out of pocket. At first, I was thinking it was just going to be 600 but now it has ended up being an additional $800 out of pocket. One of the bills hadn't come in yet when last I spoke of it. An additional $800 out of pocket, and how close am I now 
how close am I to reaching the annual deductible? I'm less than a quarter of the way. This is with my wife going. This is with my daughter going. Uh, fortunately, I haven't had a need to go. Oh, well, well, let me say this. I haven't had anything that has forced me to go. I probably should have, but I'm a stubborn old guy who doesn't want to go to the doctor at the drop of a hat. But the wife has been going. The daughter has been going. All year long, it is September. It is nearly the end of September. We're getting close to the end of the year, and I'm less than a quarter of the way through getting the uh, annual deductible out of the way. So deductibles keep going up. The rates, the premiums, they keep going up. The What gets covered keeps going down. So that's a great question to ask. But let's not ask the question, what good does it do to have insurance if you can't afford it, when we're talking about Graham Cassidy. Let's ask it when we're talking about the um, obviously misnamed Affordable Health Care Act. Let's ask the question about the current path we're on. Obamacare was a disaster from the beginning, and fortunately, we have not gotten the desired results that the leftists wanted, which was – after it tanks, everyone will come to the government and demand a solution. What we have gotten is defiant people who stood up and said, you know what, this was a mess. We do want you to fix it, but we actually want you to fix it, not make it single payer. doesn't stop people like uh, Bernie Sanders from going out there trying to say Medicare for everybody. Medicare for everybody. Medicare for everybody doesn't work. There isn't a single system that's going to work for everyone anyway, not if you still want to maintain the best care. You can have high-quality care. You can have affordability, and you can have uh, universality. You can have two of those three, but you cannot. There is no physical way to get all three. You just can't do it. For the folks who have universal health care, how do you deal with rationing? How do you deal with your higher taxes as a result? Is it affordable? Are you getting the rationing? I mean, uh, I've got some folks in the chat room right now from Canada. Got the universal care up there. Do you have trouble getting in to see your doctors when you need to? If it's a non-emergency, is there an extended wait? Is the tax rate that much higher? Says health care in Canada is not what people think. You still need health care coverage. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's a great conversation going on in the chat room right now between uh, Cal and COG talking about how liberals were robbing the veterans uh, pension coffers. So there's a sidetrack going on right there. Uh, also an important thing to discuss and talk about. And uh it's insane, but so here we are. We're, we're still asking the question. We've got – is it a step in the right direction from where we're at? Yes, but barely. I mean it's not enough to get me excited about it, and again, you know, even uh, Ted Cruz and uh, Louis Gomers and several members of the uh, Freedom Caucus are still not on board with this plan. There's going to be 
all kinds of efforts to try and get some of these folks back on board uh, over the course of the next week. And this is all coming up with this artificial deadline that they have to get it done because they want to use budget reconciliation to move it out of the hands of the Democrats to be able to filibuster it. This may very well be their last chance for at least a year to try and do something, which is why they were real quiet about working on this behind the scenes. They didn't want the Democrats trying to stop them. But now they're running out of time. Is it a good plan? No. It's not a good plan. It's not. It's far from perfect. It still is Obamacare light. Rand Paul is exactly right when he says it's Obamacare light, that it is not repeal in any form or fashion. But there are some good things. There are some repeals of some taxes that are in there that is a good thing, and it does put some power back into the hands of the states, which is a good thing as long as the states don't try to take advantage of getting additional federal taxpayer dollars and then not put it to good use, which can we count on that? No. No, we can't, and that's the sad part. Ultimately, it's not a great plan, but if somebody is willing to vote yes on this because they see it as a step in the right direction, then I'm willing to forgive them for that vote, but I still want to hear them say, now let's get to work on fixing the rest. If I hear that, then I'm still going to be okay as long as I see them actually working, not just lip service. Ultimately, this is something that should have already been done. The House and Senate Republicans had eight years at this point, getting in actually eight and a half years at this point, to have tried to work on a solution. The easiest, most simple solution is to just repeal it and let the chips fall where they may. If we put this back into the free market, then what's going to happen is insurance companies will again have to compete for business. If you're going to actually force insurance companies to compete with more businesses, you will see rates come down. But with the escalated crap that's going on with the war of words between now directly uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, where Kim Jong-un is now <clears throat> referring to Donald Trump as senile, you know, we need to be focused on what's going on around the world. And then as far as the tax reform plan, that, there are people that are throwing out scary numbers. Oh, we're going to lose this much in revenue. The Congressional Budget Office scores things in a static fashion, as if it's just in a bubble and as if nothing else changes. So it's not a very effective means for trying to grade tax reform in the first place. But when people make a statement like that, it does prove two things. Number one, it does it enforces the mindset of your money is really the government's to take anyway. Just be happy that they let you keep some of it. That's the mindset of the government, but they, they, that should not be the mindset, and it should not be accepted by any free-thinking people. If you're part of a culture that uh, embraces liberty – then your money is the fruit of your labor and should be your money. It is not the government's to take and keep and play with and decide how much you get to keep. It's just not that way. But to look at this as saying, well, we lose this much revenue is essentially backing up the idea. It's agreeing with the thought that, yes, yes, it's really the government's money. But it also does not take into account the fact that leaving more money in the hands of 
businesses and in the hands of citizens who are earning enough money that they can do something with it, that that actually improves the economy to the point that you garner more revenue at a lower tax rate because more people have more money. Well, that's just preposterous. That can't possibly work. It's happened before, and that's the crazy thing. There is enough hard evidence, enough statistical data to go back and point at our greatest economic rises and the relationship to the level of taxes at those times that makes it quite clear. You know, On those occasions where we lower the tax burden on the citizens that are middle class or higher, because if you're below middle class, you typically don't have much of a tax burden. Not at the federal level. You're probably still paying enough sales tax to your local stuff that uh, who knows what you're paying. But uh, at the federal level, not much of a tax burden on you if you are below the middle class. And in some cases, not any. In fact, in many cases, you may be getting back more at the end of every year than you actually paid in. I wouldn't call that a tax burden. When we have reduced the tax burden on the middle class and the upper class, the economy has always gotten stronger, and revenues have always went up. The revenues went up because the middle class folks were able to spend more money on goods and services that were taxable, and some of them were able to start their own businesses, and some of them were able to move to a higher tax class because of it. And the folks that are already in the higher tax class have been able to start investing in the country again to raise pay rates for their employees and all kinds of wonderful things like that, which in turn is that rising tide. So tax reform is a good idea. Tax reform, reducing the rates on the middle class and higher is a good idea. It will allow, if it's done correctly, if it's done smartly, and all you have to do, like I said, is go back and look at what we've done in the past because we've proven that it works. We've proven that it works so we can do that. It's not like it's just some made-up thing. And to hear people who are supposed to be conservative question, well, how can you say that this is a good idea for the government if it's going to add to the national debt? You're adding to the national debt when you reduce the uh, revenues. It's like there might be a short-term dip. But at this point, let's not even pretend like the national debt matters to anybody because if it still mattered to somebody other than some conservative talk show host, I don't know any, that uh, preach and harp on the idea. If it still mattered to somebody else that was in a position that can do something about it, it would be done by now. It's insane that we have a national debt as high as it is. It's an invitation for the destruction of our economy. But what is the quickest, fastest, simplest, easiest, most painless way to fix the problem? Oh, yeah. Some tax reform would go a long way down that road. And to hear people talk about, you're going to be causing us to, to raise the national debt because of it, with no mention of the fact that, yes, short-term, maybe. And even that's just a maybe. Because if you started it early enough in a fiscal year, by the end of that fiscal year, things 
when they're already going in a positive direction, may have improved enough that you're not shortchanging yourself, even in the short term. Well, there's not a guarantee. It's not even likely, but the possibility is there. In fact, if you did this the right way, there's no telling how quickly it would catch fire. It's important to move forward with tax reform here in the United States if we want to save the republic. If we want to save individual liberty, it's important. It is important for us to do something about Obamacare because right now citizens are suffering and people are losing access to health care because of affordability, affordability that is being decimated because of the <clears throat> Affordable Health Care Act. The single biggest individual step this nation had ever taken towards socialism, Obamacare. Something has to be done, and I'm with Rand Paul. It needs to be repealed. You want to do some kind of replacement, it better be damn good, and it better be damn constitutional, and I don't see that coming forth. But is Graham Cassidy a step in the right direction? And the step in the right direction from where we're at now… <sighs> It's kind of a baby step in the right direction. I'm not going to get excited about it. I'm not going to get on the bandwagon and start saying, yes, we need this, yes, we – because I've already explained the dangers of what happens if we just pass something to pass it. Because then all of a sudden the Democrats don't get the blame anymore. Is that really what you want, Diane? Do you really want suddenly it to be on the Republicans when they pass something that's not going to be any more effective than what Obamacare already is? Or is just barely more effective, but actually does make it harder for those folks who did gain something from it? Because that's all the media is going to post up in wall-to-wall -wall coverage for the next however long it takes to put Democrats back in power in the House and the Senate and the White House. And don't doubt for a second that that's not exactly what they're going to do, because it is. Now, as far as the NFL is concerned, guys, sorry, but here's the deal. If the NFL owners wanted to uh, tell their players that they need to stand up for that and they need to be present and whatever else they wanted to do, they could, and they'd be completely in their rights. Because your First Amendment right to freedom of speech doesn't matter when you're on the clock. When you're on the clock, you are representing that organization, and you have to be representative of that organization. If the owners are okay with it, then nobody else should really make a big deal about it. That's not to say that you as a fan can't be turned off by it and then choose to, to walk away from it. In fact, I highly suggest you do. If it bothers you, then don't watch a show. Don't watch a show. Don't uh, get on the NFL Network. Cancel your subscriptions if you have them. Don't buy the merchandise. Do the boycott thing if that's what you want to do. I highly recommend that you speak with your dollars because that is the one thing that will get the attention of NFL owners faster than anything. Uh, you know, season pass owners are one thing, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, that's it. And as far as uh, – well, I've got a caller who's raised their hand, so hopefully I can still sneak that in. Uh, caller, we've got uh, – I'll write about three minutes, but uh, you're on live. Go ahead. Well, I, I wish I could have came in I, earlier. I wish I could have came in earlier. Yeah, I got a feedback. Uh, is that better? 
Yeah, that's pretty good. No, I was just going to make a, a a point. You know, you're talking about John McCain. Uh, looking at him, now this, looking at John McCain today, we may have got a pretty good deal back in 2008 when he was running for president and he lost. And I don't know how you feel about that. But seeing how he's came out on certain issues, even uh, after seven years of talking against something, then when you have an opportunity to make changes and make corrections in what you was talking against, then all of a sudden you do a flip-flop. And one other thing, I hear people today uh, talking about Donald Trump is restricting uh, First Amendment rights of individuals as it has to do with uh, these, these football players. And they make a reference to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. First Amendment of the United States Constitution said Congress shall not make any laws. It only applied to Congress. It does not apply to corporations and businesses and other entities of such, only to Congress. And Donald Trump is the executive. He carries out the laws. Congress has not made any law that I know of, of yet that have said that you cannot have free speech. And another point. Corporations that you work in, they can prevent you, uh, ask you not to wear certain buttons or do other things that you would equivalent that to being free speech. College newspapers have had discussions about when you had organizations on the college wanting to put certain things in the newspaper and the hierarchy in the college said, no, you can't do that. Congress, you have had Supreme Court decisions that say that free speech is just not free. I mean, there can be restrictions. So I know you only got a short amount of time. I just wanted to put that out there. All right, sir. I appreciate your call. Great points all the way around. And I, I do wish you'd called earlier. I'd love to have given you some more time. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, and, you know, in that, those are got about 60 seconds left and I really do wish I could have continued with that conversation uh, but again this whole thing about uh, where Trump started with uh, with this uh, whole NFL thing and then the Stephon Curry thing uh, it's still blown out of proportion and it leaves me still with the lingering question is this just intended to be a distraction for the media while he still works on trying to get this uh, this Graham Cassidy thing uh, solid up, which I don't think is going to do him much good, or while he's working on other things behind the scenes. Either way, I'm kind of iffy on whether it's a good strategy or not. They claim that it's worked before. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. Uh, we'll find out. At any rate, thanks for being here, guys. I want to give a shout-out to everybody who was in the shot. Thank the caller very much for calling in. And, guys, remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort to use your brain and to really be prepared to work just a little bit if you really want to tap into the truth. This is my friend, Cashy's Low. This is a song called Miracle. Thanks for being here. 